We're in history, Bob Ray reminds me. In this podcast, it's my privilege to speak with the Canadian ambassador to the United Nations about his life as a reformer in politics. Former interim leader of the Liberal Party of Canada and NDP Premier of Ontario, Bob Ray knows more than most about the need to continually reform our imperfect institutions. We speak about his unlikely affinity with the thought of Evan Burke, the dangers of theoretical politics, the responsibility of multilateralism, the long-term impacts of COVID-19, the future of climate change action, and justice for the Rohingya in Myanmar. At a time when world leaders are facing unprecedented challenges, Bob Ray is a reminder of what thoughtful and humane reform leadership can be. Hey everyone, welcome to the next episode of Beaconsfield Podcast. I'm really excited today and very honoured really to be speaking to Ambassador Bob Ray. He's just recently been appointed the Canadian Ambassador to the United Nations. He's the former NDP Premier of Ontario in Canada, the former Interim Leader of the Liberal Party of Canada, and he's held an important position, role and contributing in voice in almost every major um, issue in Canadian politics for the last few years. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Ambassador. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jack. So Ambassador, there's a lot to speak to you about. I mean, we're going to speak probably about multilateralism, about what's going on in the world internationally, about COVID. But Beaconsfield's a podcast about reform, right? It's about reform and cultural change, and it's conceived in the spirit of Edmund Burke. And I know that you are a reader of Burke and an affiliate of Burke, and so I'd love to hear about how his thoughts have impacted your practical work today. So that's what we're going to be speaking about. But first off, I'd like to do something that you do in your own podcast, Political Stripe. And I'd like to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself. So you've just been recently appointed Canadian ambassador. Why is that role so personally significant for you? Well, my, my dad was a diplomat. I, mm. am, I grew up... Um, uh, traveling with them, my dad. My dad was posted a lot of different places during the war. He was posted in uh, in Algeria, uh, assisting in the representation of Canada to the Free French, and then he went to Paris with my mum. Mm. Uh, and then his career went on to different things. And I grew up in Ottawa and Washington, London, and then I did my high school in Geneva at the at the uh, international school, uh, and then came back to go to the University of Toronto, where I read history, um, and then went to Oxford, but always kept close touch with my parents, obviously. My dad was ambassador at the UN in Geneva, and he was ambassador at the UN in New York. So uh, I visited him here many times. So it, it, it sort of in many variety of ways, of like a lot of people, <laughs> it took me a long time to realize how, how wise my father was. and. Um, so coming here at my age, I'm 72 now. It's not a, not uh, not my first rodeo, as we say in Canada. <laughs> um, it was uh, it was really quite. Um, uh, when the prime minister asked me, I was quite I was quite taken aback because I wasn't expecting it, uh, and uh, was uh, very glad very glad to come. Uh, of course, it's a different world. It's 50 years mm-hmm. later since he was here. Um, but uh, a lot of the a lot of the challenges remain, and a lot of the challenges of reform remain, mm-hmm. and the frustrations of reform because you know reform is a difficult thing to do. And UN reform, as you know, is one of the things on the agenda. I mean, we have a constitution of the UN, the Charter, uh, that establishes a structure which uh, really doesn't work very well um, mm-hmm. from the point of view of the the executive of the of the organization. Uh, five countries have a veto. So five countries have a veto. Uh, guess what? A lot of the time it's, uh, mm. it's deadlocked, it's paralyzed. Mm. Uh, so uh, what's happened is what often happens in these situations is that other things get invented around a part of the body that doesn't work. And uh, that's really what's been happening is that new institutions have been created, new ways of doing things mm. have been created, new uh, ways of conducting dialogue, and um, but the fact is that not being supremely functional at the top, at the very t- at the top political structure, uh, has created a challenge for the organization. And uh, so, yeah, it's about reform. It's not about blowing it up. It's about yeah. how do you how do you make it better? Yeah, one of the things that really stood out to me about 
uh, from a press conference that you did in July upon recently being appointed was that you responded to the objection uh, that critics often make being that the United Nations is a body of conflicting states who don't agree with each other and everything. And you kind of just said, it's a human institution like any other. It's filled with people who disagree, people who have human frailties, who have to find some ways of working with one another. And we've seen over the last week in the speeches of the General Assembly, Prime Minister Trudeau's speech, for example, yesterday, as well as some of the reports that you've released recently, that multilateralism has to be the big idea here for trying to aid that reform at a, at a cultural change level. My question is, Ambassador, how do you conceive of your personal role in being a custodian of that multilateralism? I mean, it's a really difficult thing, right? But as a leader yourself, how, do you, how are you going to go about that? Well, we, I mean, I think I've heard the word multilateralism used more <laughs> in the last week than I've ever heard it before. <laughs> yeah. Almost like going to uh, a religious ceremony where the same words mm. get getting repeated over and over and over again. Um, I, I think we just have to recognize that the UN is not the only place. I mean, what does multilateralism mean? Uh, and I think that's something we need, you know, when you keep hearing this word over and over again, you have to sort of say, I'm going back to my Oxford days, mm. you know, some wise professor would say to me, well, what do you mean by that, Mr. Ray? What do you mean? <laughs> and I think it's important for us to think about that. I mean, for me, mm. it, it means, uh, a, a commitment to recognize that we're that we're in history and we're in the world, mm. uh, and that we have to we have to learn how to connect with other people, mm. and that uh, accepting uh, the principle of multilateralism and the, and what connects it with it is is our notions of the rule of law, is that we don't get to decide these things by virtue of of being the most powerful or. Um, by throwing our weight around in a variety of ways, we do it by creating a set of rules and a set of ways of behaving where there, are, there has to be some mutual respect. There has to be yeah. a recognition that um, you, you, can't, you can't simply let brute power rule the day. And I, I think that's the key concept. Uh, mm. To me, that's what it means. And, uh, I mean, I don't want to get too theological here, but when we talk about God, I think what we're saying is there's there's actually some something that's bigger than us. Mm. Uh, we're we're not that except we're not so exceptional that the rules don't apply to us, and we're not so exceptional that we don't have to show uh, loyalty to something bigger than us. And and to me, that's that's really what the meaning of multilateralism is. Mm. It's 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 about recognizing that uh, we we have to work together, and in order to work together effectively, we have to respect each other. And in order to be able to respect each other, we we can only do that in a framework of law, and in a framework of rules that are applied on a fair basis. Now, it's very frustrating at a at a multilateral level because the reality is is that uh, countries will frequently break away and say, well, yeah, of course we believe in multilateralism, but not in this case, not as it relates to us, not as it affects us. Mm. So it's being challenged at every at every level by by virtue of the, the conduct of, of parties, not just big parties, which where we can recognize the behavior, but all of us. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, we, we all we're all sinners here. Yeah. Uh, but the thing about being a sinner is that you recognize that you're a sinner and you recognize that you, you have to connect with what you, what you know is true, what you believe is true. So we're all having to rely on our, our, uh, our better natures. I can, I can really see the Birkin in you coming out there. So let's, <laughs> let's, um, I've always found it fascinating that Bob Ray, you know, former Ontario NDP leader is a Birkin. So, so how did, how did that come to happen? When did you first encounter Burke? Do you remember? Well, actually, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, mm. I think it's interesting. I'm glad you do. I suspect we're the only two people who do. Uh, but I, but I, <laughs> we'll find out from a, from the vast part of we get from, from the podcast. No, I, I think it started. It started for me actually in a, in as these things sometimes do in a seminar. Um, right. I was in a tutorial with uh, uh, my Oxford Don, an American uh, who came to Oxford and stayed named Bill Weinstein and Bill was a very, very thoughtful guy. And he had me and another student working together on uh, 
every week you'd come in with an essay on something and he'd assign the essay. And the next week he said, okay, Mr. Ray, I'd like you to uh, have a look at Burke. And I said, Burke, I don't want to read Burke. <laughs> I care about Burke, he's just an old Tory, I'm not interested. He said, no, I think, you, you know, you have to, have to you have to come to grips with them. So I I read uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France. And I I mean, the language is very flowery and formal in many respects. It's, uh, but still there was an argument there that I found uh, really quite interesting in the context of social democracy. And that was that he was really saying, uh, well, it's a lot of things in Reflections, but he was really saying institutions matter. Uh, and uh, theories that think of themselves as being greater than institutions or more powerful than institutions are dangerous in and of themselves. Mm. Uh, he, you know, he said there's nothing more dangerous than governing in the name of a theory. And, and I, I think it, 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 it was something that stayed with me. And I'll also that um, he, he really understood totalitarianism yeah. <laughs> extremely well. And he was one of the first people to actually describe uh, in describing the French Revolution and all of its excesses. Uh, and he was an early warning system, really, because, uh, and uh, you know, like Orwell did in the 1930s, he really pointed out, you know, what is the nature of totalitarianism? What does it do? Well, it lies, it deceives, it, and it kills. And it tries to make everything about politics, and it has an all-subsuming sense of politics. And Burke was, in many respects, he was an old, you know, he he had certainly he had he was a he was a liberal conservative, I guess you'd say. He yes. believed in reform, but he believed profoundly in the institutions that that surrounded him. And I think what's interesting from a social democratic perspective is that we too have created institutions. We've created trade unions. We've created um, rights and, and entitlements and and uh, ways of of uh, behaving and engaging with each other that recognize. Um, mutual responsibilities. Uh, and while we didn't get to these things without a, de a strong degree of conflict and, and pain and, and suffering, um, we, we lose these at our peril. And ironically, it was because um, I felt in my later, in, in my political career that I was surrounded by ideologues on the left and the right. Yeah. Uh, both of whom claim to be revolutionaries, uh, and I, I didn't, I didn't find their, their theories or ways of of uh, conducting themselves uh, very positive, and I felt that a lot of what they were doing was quite destructive. Mm. I think Margaret Thatcher was quite destructive. I think mm. that uh, the, the Thatcherites in in Canada that I had to deal with over time have been quite destructive. Mm. Um, because it, because they were destroying institutions and because they were destroying things that had been built up over a long period of time out of a sense of mutual rights and responsibilities. And I felt that, that to, to obliterate those in the name of a theory was very wrong. And I still feel that way. Um, yeah. So I guess that's sort of a part of my evolution. And then I, and then I started reading more and more about Burke and, uh, I was, I was, I loved Connor Cruz O'Brien's book. I yeah. thought it was great a melody. Yeah, a great melody. I thought it's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. And uh, and the story of how he came to write the book, I think, is mm. very meaningful too. Getting rid of his draft and coming back. He abandoned his thesis and then came back to it late, <laughs> late, late, late in life and wrote about it. And I, I think I found that very compelling. Mm. So as a, as a statesman, then I've never gotten the chance to, uh, as, as a statesman, you're a statesman, you're, I think you're one of the world's great statesman. I think it's still a noble title to have, but you know, as someone who's actually been in politics and the cut and thrust state politics, you know, federal politics, now the UN to what, what are you left with? If you don't have guiding theories, you've talked about social relationships and institutions and these sorts of things. And you had that wonderful phrase before about the UN, when you said we're in history, what principles do you have left to actually guide you when you're making these decisions? Or is that just a kind of philosophical, historical, intellectual point that, you know, thinkers make where really as an actor, you just make the decisions. Like I'm very interested in that decision-making process and where the principles actually play into it. What do you think about that? Well, well, that's right. I mean, I think, I think, um, I guess you draw the line between abstract theories, if you like, or values that are based on, yeah, on 
on basic understanding or circumstance. I mean, we're, we're, we're all driven by certain ideologies, right? I mean, we're all driven by values and systems of thought and so on, but, uh, and, and non people who claim to be non-ideological are just simply reflecting a, a, in a way the, their own values. And, and yeah, I mean, I've always been, I've long felt that pragmatism was, mm. was, uh, figuring out what works and figuring out what doesn't work, learning from mistakes, learning from experience, uh, respecting um, institutions because they, not because they're perfect or because they've simply been there, but because they reflect uh, a certain amount of learned experience, learned wisdom. Mm. You say, okay, that, you know, that works because of. Now, you know, you, I don't revere them. I don't worship at the altar of institutions. And I think that's something that, in the great debate between Thomas Paine and mm. and, uh, and Edmund Burke, which I wrote about in uh, my book, Exploring Democracy. Got it here for everyone who wants uh, to read. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Very yeah. good. Uh, I I, uh, I I you know I I can I concluded that there's actually something there's something of of, of both Paine and Burke in in all democratic thinking. I think I mean Burke mm. would not have called himself a democrat, but by virtue of the fact that democracy has become sort of one of our acquired pieces of wisdom mm. about how, how the wisest way to conduct oneself and how to govern, um, it it is uh, it, it it you know it is now this it is now the institution which we're defending, um, and Burke would not have been defending that institution in in Parliament in in in, in the 1770s and 1780s, but. Here we are. We're not living in the 1770s, yeah. 1780s. So we, we don't we don't just worship at the institution. We try to reform mm. it. Um, and I think what Payne was saying was that well, yeah, you, there's a, there was certainly a degree of radicalism in Payne and a degree of you know a, a, a wonderful ability to cut through mm. uh, a lot of cant and, and, and nonsense and just and just lay it out as, as he saw it. But there's also some stuff in pain, which is, I think, a, 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 a very wrong and, and a terrible conceit. You know, the, the notion that everything, you know, everything is new again. It's a new day. Yeah. Um, and this has captured American political thinking. You know, every, we all start all over again. And it's mm. nonsensical. We don't start all over again. <laughs> we start from where we are based on, you know, it's, not, it's a new day. Yeah, but it's, mm. it's the day after yesterday. I mean, it's... It's uh, you know not 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 it doesn't work to sort of suggest that somehow we can create from mm. and and Payne himself had to learn this in the hard way spending time in jail in France <laughs> coming within a whisker of losing yeah. his life um, at the hands of revolutionaries whom he had previously defended because mm. I think he had a very naive view of what they were all about um, mm. and 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 his life in many respects as was Burke's life had had tragic elements to it at the end. Um, but the, the debate between them, I think, is a fascinating one and, and, um, and really important for us to reflect on, on its meaning. So, so you know, that, that brings me back to this thought about the history idea. I mean, Burke's saying that human beings are historical creatures and Paine saying we can begin a new day, whether that's based on the rights of man or on some other program of uh, revolution, revolutionary change. How can leaders, reformers, whether they're in the UN or in government help people to reconceive their place in their history, reconceive of their place in their history. I mean, this seems to be one of the debates in America right now is it's very interesting to see how history plays in uh, to the way that say Joe Biden is trying to make a narrative about reform out um, versus how president Donald Trump is. How do you get people reacquainted with their history for the right reasons? What do you think about that? Well, I think it's really important. Uh, I mean, all, we're all rewriting our history all the time, right? I mean, we're yeah. seeing things in our history. I know in Australia and Canada, uh, and I've been very caught up in this myself, um, you know, we've, we've discovered more about our roots and more about our, our relationships uh, between settlers and indigenous people yeah. uh, than we ever knew before. And so, uh, we're 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 re we're re-understanding that history. We're seeing it in a different light. We're rejecting the notion that uh, there was nobody on these lands before settlers arrived, and and we're we're really discovering the injustices of the encounter and and how how devastating uh, it has been, and and how 
damaging it's been and what it what it comes to signify for um, for our countries. But I, 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 you know, the fact that we're re, that we are relearning, rewriting, re, re, looking at history again, seeing it in a different light, is all good. I mean, it's all good. But without us, I mean, I, I, I talk about this a lot with my with my family members. Yeah. You know, you've got to understand your family history. You've got to know where people came from and, and what they were all about. And uh, it's a great story. I mean, I'll just tell you tell you something about this. The other day, I was meeting with the Fijian ambassador. My wife and I had dinner with him and his wife, and um, we were talking about our family stories. Mm. And uh, you know, I have family from Glasgow, uh, Lithuania. Um, Melbourne, uh, and, uh, and London mm. and roots going into deep into Scottish history into into Jewish history and in Lithuania into, uh, family stories from, from London and, and can trace the family back to the 16th century. And, and, uh, my, my great grandfather was Willie George who founded the, the store called George's in Melbourne. <laughs> okay. uh, which is now no longer there, but um, I, even to this day, I, I meet people who, like Mitch Fifield is the Australian ambassador. Yeah. I said, do you know George? He said, oh yeah, sure. I mean, everybody knows George is, you know, but it's, it's gone, gone a long time ago. It was sort of the, <laughs> the Harrods of Melbourne. Uh, and it, it's just important to understand what you're, what, you know, where you come yeah. from. And I was talking about this with the Fijian ambassador and he said, you know, it's very interesting. He said, I said, well, tell me your story. He said, my wife and I are the grandchildren of indentured laborers who were brought over by boat to Fiji to work as indentured laborers, meaning effectively as slaves. They were bought mm. uh, and they worked uh, in the, in the uh, sugar plantations. Uh, and he, they discovered when they were at university and they met that their grandparents had come over in the same boat. They oh, didn't wow. know each other. So, you know, life is full of, I mean, I discovered when mm. my wife and I went to Lithuania to visit um, her family and my family, we found out that uh, they had lived within, I don't know, 30 miles of each other uh, in, in Lithuania, two, two villages. So, you know, I mean, it's just important to know those things. But mm. more, more significantly, I think, when we look at the U.S. and and uh, and 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 every everyone's sense of who they are. I find that you know there is a battle right now going on over history. I mean, Donald Trump is saying everyone has to learn and be taught that America is the greatest country in the world and American exceptionalism. And there's no country that compares to America. We have to go back and learn about this story. Um, well, you know, you can have official histories, but you also can have real histories <laughs> where yeah. you find out. Well, yeah, but this was. This is also what happened in in the course of time. This is also what uh, what took place. So, it it, it it it's it's entirely. We're not going to get one version. There's not going to be one official one official mm. version of what happened. But it's mm. important that you debate and, and accept the fact that you're in this stream. Uh, we're in this stream of history, uh, yeah. and and nobody, no matter how much they might like to think that they're exceptional to this story of history, no no one is. No country is. No nation is. No religion is. We're all we're all in it. It reminds me of that that lovely phrase from W. B. Yeats, which is um, we need to learn how to hold in a single vision or thought reality and justice. And it's that constant dance between the two that generates history and our place in it. And I mean, you've obviously been dealing with the COVID-19 crisis quite a bit since getting into the UN. And I know you've been thinking about it and you've released a report on how that impacts refugees, which we'll talk about. But do you buy the whole rhetoric or commentary about this being a big moment in time where there are going to be radical changes in our history, the way that we reconceive of doing things, the way that we reform our institutions and so forth. And if so, what do you think the UN's part to play is in that, the, the kind of international scape? I, I don't know the answer to that first question. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm always skeptical of uh, people who say this is a you know, moment in time like no other and it's going to lead to, mm. you know, cataclysmic change, etc. I mean, I think technology is driving things really hard. I think the pandemic, uh, which people have been predicting for a long time, but 
but but not many people really believed it was going to come and it was going to make have the impact that it's having. Um, I mean, I don't. I think that I think that the 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 impact of of COVID is is immensely serious. But I think it's 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 mainly going to be very serious because of its because of its long term effects mm. um, in every part of the world. They're going to be different in different parts of the world, but it's not something you recover from quickly. Um, and I think that the, the pain of knowing that it lasts for a long time and has some very strong enduring impacts means that um, it could have uh, very, very serious consequences um, in, in ways I think that, that people in the West often don't think about. I mean, we're having to reimagine how our economies are gonna recover in Australia and in Canada and the United States and Western countries. Um, but there's a, a, you know, there's a tremendously strong underlying basis of prosperity in all of our, in all of our countries. Um, but there are a great many countries which have been living through, through crisis and through huge challenges in, in Africa and in Asia and in Latin America where COVID is gonna be is not going to be it is right now a huge blow um mm. it's killing people it's it's uh, destroying jobs at, a, at an enormous pace it's uh, creating uh more conflict people are having to migrate move and leave and, uh it, it, it the, the the long-term impacts are, are are simply immense uh and then the the lingering impact is going to be that everything that people had aspired to building was going to fall back. I was talking to the prime minister of one country about four months ago. Um, uh, and, and he said, he said, you know, you have to understand, Mr. Ray, we spent 20 years building ourselves up from the bottom. We spent 20 years doing what we were told to do by the IMF, by the World Bank, by everybody else. We've slowly managed to claw our way up into the, you know, the lower middle income countries. Uh, we're, we're growing, we're able to do some things, we can provide for a degree of comfort. Uh, people are, are looking to a more prosperous future and that has all been whacked on the head. Uh, we, we, we have millions of people coming back to our country who were, who were working overseas and sending their remittances back to their families. We've got them here, they're unemployed. We don't have the remittances anymore so we don't have the revenue we had. Um, and we have many, many internal conflicts, which are, which are going to become much, much, much worse as a result. And I think we need to understand that impact. It's, it's, it is going to be um, a body blow for a lot of countries. Now, I, I, be, I believe in my heart that you can't let despair take over. Mm. Uh, but it is, it, is going, it is going to force, it should force, significant change, significant reform. Uh, in the way in which we work, because uh, as our prime minister said said yesterday, you, know, you, you need to have the courage to know when things are not working. Yeah, uh, and you can't look at a situation now and say everything's working. We just have to make a couple of tweaks here and there, and it'll 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 happen. I mean, we, we know, for example, on climate change, we have to change the way the economies of our all of our countries actually work. Now we can do this because of. Uh, of technology uh, and uh, we, we can make it happen but it is going to be difficult and we're not doing it in the name of a theory mm. <laughs> we're doing it in the in the name in the face of facts yeah and and uh, Mark Carney who's the former governor of the Bank of England and the Bank of Canada once said something that I think was very very wise which is that we're living with two tragedies one is the tragedy of the commons and, but the other, which the economists are very familiar with, but now we're living with a tragedy of horizons. Our vision is not long enough ahead. We're not able to take into account what we, what we intellectually can grasp is going to happen, but we have not absorbed it emotionally or in terms of the day-to-day -day decisions that we make as governments and as businesses and as people. Mm. So we have, to, we have to learn how to do that. And it's, it's challenging because we don't usually think about it. 50 or 100 year horizon. We don't look ahead that long. Indigenous cultures do that. Uh, they have a much longer time horizon going forward and going backward uh, than most people do. We can learn a lot from them.
Yeah, it reminds me of a book actually from um, from Jonathan Lee, Radical Hope, in which he's talking about how Indigenous cultures have this ability to take a worldview that they have emerged from and be able to live that into the future without knowing what that is. And I think that we all have to have radical hope right now. It really sounds like what we need. But coming back to the Birkin point, you know, you've talked about how we need to stay close to historical facts and pragmatic reform and be wary of theories and these kind of overarching projections about the future. In such a chaotic climate for governmental decision makers, how do you be cautious? I mean, you know, Burke tells us, look to the unintended consequences of your actions, be fearful of yourselves. And that's hard enough advice in relatively stable conditions. What happens to that in a radical moment where the radicality is biological? What, what do you think about that? What is, what's the place of caution? I, I, I don't, I actually don't read Burke as being tremendously cautious. I mean, if you look at, mm. if you look at, you know, the, the last, the last uh, India, yeah. piece of music in India, I mean, he was, he was exceptionally bold. I mm. mean, he didn't, he didn't buy the institutional argument that, you know, the East India Company was, 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 was just a, another institution that was doing its job. I mean, he, he looked at what he saw were some absolutely fundamental injustices and he pursued them uh, to the point where a lot of people thought he was nuts. He just said, you know, this is, you got to get a sense of balance. You got to get a sense. Of, and in fact, <laughs> even William Dalrymple's great book called The Anarchy, which is the story of the East India Company said, uh, Burke probably had the wrong guy, that, that he was going after <laughs> Warren Hastings when he really wasn't the, the evil genius that he'd been made out to be. It was, you know, it was a lot of other people who, who were much worse than Warren Hastings was. Um, and actually, I think, I think Dalrymple kind of gives too short a shrift to, to what Burke was really on about, because right. what, what, he, what he was on about was establishing an absolutely fundamental principle, uh, which is that the rule of law prevails no matter where, where you are. That don't think that, don't think that the, you know, and the view was very common in the 18th century. These are wild, you know, savage lands that have no laws and have no rules and, and, are, and are just, you know, we can, we can behave just like them when we're there because that's the only thing they understand. And Burke said, no, 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 no. There's, there's, there's profound histories in, in, in India. There's a rule of law in India and everything that's been done is offensive. It's offensive under, under universal principles. I mean, it's ironic that Burke, who was such a critic of the French Revolution, is actually kind of like, almost like one of the fathers of the of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, because he's saying there are these rights are universal. They're not, they're not um, the product of only one culture or you know specific to, to one time. So I'm not sure I see I see Burke mm. as being that cautious. I think he's I think what he's saying is be smart. Uh, and, but I also think he would I hope he would say certainly I'm saying um, the measures have to meet have to meet the seriousness of the circumstance. Mm. Sometimes we have to do things that are bigger than we, than we might have done before because the circumstances facing us are, are that much bigger. Mm. Um, and one of the biggest mistakes we can make, I think, is, is, um, is doing too little as, as, much as, as much as it can be a mistake to do too much. Uh, I think, for example, in the face of COVID-19, Western governments have decided to do everything they can to deal with their domestic issues and have not really turned their, their full attention, <laughs> to put it mildly, to the state of the global economy. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I heard what I thought was a very compelling argument by um, someone the other day in, in a discussion we were having at the UN about, you know, if you consider what the Americans did uh, for the Europeans after the Second World War with the Marshall Plan, uh, that was at a level, I mean, after the war, I mean, after they spent all this money in the war, mm. deeply in debt by, you know, by previous standards, and they just kept going. And then George Marshall comes along and saying, we've got to do much, much more for Europe. In fact, we've got to do something we've never even considered doing. We've got to rebuild these economies. We've got to give them a lot of money, and we've got to lend them some money on completely favorable terms. And we've got to do it in a in a big in a big way, or else it's not going to work. 
And of course, they were partly driven by the threat of communism and by the sense that there'll be huge social unrest in Europe if we don't respond. But when you think about it, I mean, what an exercise in statecraft that was. I mean, some, yeah. it wasn't necessarily hugely popular with everybody saying, why are we giving all this money away? And they say, well, we're doing it because we have to. And, and I think we're at that kind of moment when it comes to the global economy. I think we're at a stage when we have to say, we have to think about doing things at a scale that's much larger than we thought before. And actually it's a way of linking um, the, the COVID crisis with, with climate change because the yeah. way we rebuild uh, could help us to turn the corner uh, on, on climate change. I mean, I think we've been mm. kidding ourselves <laughs> since Kyoto. You know, mm -hmm. let's pretend we're doing something. Everybody says, yeah, let's pretend we're doing something. We'll all sign something and we'll pretend we're doing something. But, the, you know, the kidding has to stop now. And, and we do have to get serious about mm -hmm. it or else we know what's going to happen in terms of, of even more severe weather and, and climates which will be um, unlivable for, for a lot of people. And, and that's, that's a, a problem on a scale that we've never imagined before. Mm. Yeah, I mean... Um... I mean, Prime Minister Trudeau made this point in his speech yesterday too, didn't he? That we cannot forget that that primary concern. And I mean, in Australia, in the Australian landscape, there's been a lot of talk about how effective, for example, a national cabinet has been bringing together state leaders with the prime minister and the ministers to make decisions. And I think there is this wish or hope, rather, that people have, particularly in Australia, that that kind of good governmental decision-making informed by a proper psychological reading of the people and where they're at and what they need. Um, people are hoping that that's going to get carried through on the climate issue. And, and I hope it will be. We'll have to see, I guess. But coming back to this point about... The frustration, just, yeah. to, just to cut you yeah. off for a second. Because uh, yeah. I, mean, I think what's interesting about both Canada mm. and Australia is that there's an argument that's, I think, quite deeply ingrained in the thought of of both our peoples, both our countries. Mm. And that is that we're too small to make a difference yeah. on climate change. And they and and people say, well look, we're gonna go through all this, you know, all this sturm und drang, all these changes, uh, and shifting of the economy and people losing jobs and people getting jobs and all of this, you know, and it's not gonna make any difference because we're we're too small. We don't have that much of an impact on on global emissions. And that's, you know, from a moral standpoint, that's actually, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting argument because what it really means is let's be a free rider for as long as we can. And then eventually when we'll have to, we'll do something, but we're not going to be leading the, leading the charge. Mm. Uh, and we'll, we'll only do what we have to do. Mm. And we won't do any more than that. And it, it has some appeal, political appeal. Um, but the problem with it is, is it makes it very difficult to go to another country and say, you've got to do this and that, they'll look at you and say, well, what are you doing? So this whole question of mutuality, what does multilateralism mean? Mm. It means that we're, we're, we're in this together and we accept common burdens and targets mm. that, are, that are going to be meaningful. And we're not, you know, we're, we're, we're far from that at the moment. But although, yeah. um, you know, it, it, I, 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 am, I happen to be an optimist. I happen to believe that um, it's quite possible that within the next decade, within the next you know, five years, um, enough countries will have come on board and demonstrating what can be done, plus the speed of technological change, which I think is happening much more quickly than people realize. Yeah. I think that will then have, have an impact. And people say, yes, okay, now I can see the horizon. Mm. And I can see, you know, because when you say we're going to do something by 2050, I mean, come on, Jack, what does that mean to you? 2050, <laughs> to you, it means it sounds like a long way away. To me, yeah. it means most likely I won't be here. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's something after it's, it's, you know, more, more interesting is what are you going to do in the next five years? That's, that's yeah. the real critical yeah. issue. And I mean, it, I, that's such a wonderful analysis. And it reminds me of the Birkin thing again. It's like, how do you make an abstract goal like, you know, 2050 climate change targets, a lived reality for people now. Like, what's your advice for how politicians, world leaders can actually persuade people in Australia, Canada, to start to care about climate change in a way that they don't currently? Because it seems to be so big and far away and impersonal. How do we change that? I know it's a very hard thing, but what's, what's your advice for that? I'd love to hear that. Um, 
Maybe my advice is counterintuitive, but my, my view is, is talk about innovation. Uh, yeah. Talk about how do we make economies more efficient? Uh, when was waste ever a good idea? When was pollution ever a good thing? Um, I think what's going to drive, what is driving the debate about climate change in Asia is the fact that so many Asian cities are completely unlivable. They, and mm. as, as a middle class becomes, becomes more you know, numerous and engaged, uh, they're going to start saying, what, what are we doing? How are we living here? We can't breathe. We can't move. You know, cities, we can't move around in these cities. We, you know, people are wearing masks all the time, mm. not because of COVID, but because they can't breathe. And so, you know, I think that's the way to, that's the way to do it. And I think that's, it's not, to me, it's not about uh, talking about uh, uh, what life's going to be like in 2050, like trying to scare the pants off people. I don't think that works uh, because people aren't, aren't scared. Uh, I think what you have to do is appeal to people's sense of how can we make this better? Like, how can we make yeah. this less wasteful and less polluting? And, and the more we can make things less wasteful and polluting, we're actually, that's a, a good way to get, yeah. <laughs> to get on with yeah. it. Um, uh, because that, that will force more and more acceptance of the tech change. The other thing is I think yeah. actually the public, public opinion generally is, is, is willing to, to engage. And in fact, mm. there's lots of examples where people are engaged. I mean, for example, when the federal government, the United States wasn't moving on stuff, cities were moving. Mm. And, you know, much faster than everybody else. That's, that's, no, that's a really great point. I mean, at the end of the day, this is the danger of theoretical thinking again, it gets away from us. I mean, it's pretty straightforward what we need to do. <laughs> and if you, can, um, if you can help people, if you can speak to people in a way that, you know, speaks to their environment, as you said, those things about efficiency waste, I think that will start to motivate people. The problem in Australia is a bit, a bit more complex and rife because of the party politics here. Um, but that's that's all very interesting. Well, we that all have party, yeah. I mean, party yeah. politics everywhere. I mean, that's yeah. that's that's not going to change. But I, I do think that there are, and, and there's also cumulative things which happen as as countries begin to develop stronger standards and a stronger sense of what will happen. Um, you know, what if your big, biggest market <laughs> suddenly became an environmental leader? Mm. I mean, what happened in Canada was that in forestry. The, the the Europeans said, um, you know, how do you how do you, how do these trees how do this how does this paper get made? And we said, what? Why do you care about yeah. that? I said, no, we want to know. Our public wants to know. Where, where, how does this paper get made? Are you clear cutting your forest? Uh, mm, maybe. And they said, well, that's not going to work. We need to have we need you to apply environmental standards on what you're doing before you can sell this stuff to us. Mm. Uh, and I think that, you know, one of the interesting questions of transformation is at what point do the Asian economies start to say, actually, we're, we, you know, we, we become green. A population can become very green and, and very environmental very quickly. Um, and, and the pace of change has been remarkable. When you think about it, I mean, China didn't have cars until, you know, 30, 40 years ago, to any extent, 20, 10 years. I mean, the transformation has been amazing i mean for for a, for somebody like me who you know go, when i go to china i reflect on my first visit to china and what what it was like and say this is this is a this is a completely different place than it was before and and don't think that those technological changes and industrial changes don't also aren't also connected to mm. how the population thinks so i i, I yeah. don't rule that out that's a, you're making me feel hopeful again <laughs> about, um, about this whole climate change problem. And I mean, another really important part of your career in the last two years has been uh, your work as special envoy on humanitarian refugee issues. And I mean, that's a whole, a whole nother thing, but it's something I really want to speak to you about is your experience with the Rohingya people, meeting them, and, um, and what your thoughts are on the recent developments and Canada's role in that. So maybe if you can just give our listeners a sense of what's actually happening in Myanmar, because I think it's really important that, that we, that we can work that out before we have any conversation. Thank you, frozen. Oh, are we back? We're back. We should be okay. Let's see. We're back. I think yeah. you or me, but you were frozen for a second. There. Oh, good. Yeah. I think we were both frozen. There you go. Innovation. 
<laughs> Innovation tech. Yeah, so if you could just give us a sense of the Rohingya situation. Well, I mean, again, <laughs> sound like a Birkin, a bit of history. Mm. I mean, the history is mm. contested, right? Yeah. I mean, who are the Rohingya? What does Rohingya mean? Rohingya is, is a word that uh, comes from the Rohingya language, and it means mm. I'm, a, I'm a person from Rakhine State. Uh, and right away you have a contest because the, the, the official Myanmar version of history is, no, they're not from Rakhine State, they're from Bengal. They're Bengalis. Uh, and um, the only reason they're here is because the Brits got rid of all our borders. When they annexed Burma into the Indian Empire, the, the, the border went down. Mm. And as that happened, uh, the argument goes, um, all kinds of foreigners, quote, came into, came into, into Burma, into Myanmar. Uh, and, and as soon as, so the, the watch cry of, of, of the Burmese independence movement was Burma for the Burmese, mm. which uh, would, would be seen as being anti-imperialist. Uh, but uh, it was also had another message attached to it, and that is that the, the Burmese are an ethnic group within within Burma, within Myanmar, and there are many other ethnicities in Myanmar. And it, it, what it would be seen as is a way of saying Burma for us, you know, we're the we're the majority, yeah. and therefore we're going to run the country. And that's what that's what uh, you know. Basically, the, the 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 at the core of 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 the Rohingya situation is the denial that they are part of the state. They are stateless people. And they, their citizenship has been steadily eroded. They were citizens at the beginning, but their citizenship and their status has been steadily eroded by successive dictatorships and military juntas and so on that have taken over the country since 1948. Uh, so what erupted in 2017, the latest eruption was the basically the what I, we would describe as the forcible deportation and, and genocide of, of uh, several hundred thousand people who, who made their way into Bangladesh. There are still people left behind in Rakhine State, um, somewhere in the range of 300 to 500,000 uh, Rohingya are, are living there under very, very difficult circumstances and made much worse by COVID. And by the way, COVID-19 is, 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 is having a serious impact on Myanmar, right. much greater, I think, than people uh, thought at the beginning and they realize now that it's extremely serious. But it's a country that's in lockdown in a variety of, of ways. Mm. And it's been in a state of lockdown in many respects because it, 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 is, it is having a great deal of difficulty in sharing information with the rest of the world and allowing uh, the UN and others to have access to uh, to the humanitarian situation in, in in many different parts of the country, it's essentially been in a state of civil war since since the formation of the country because the so many different groups and, and regions in the country did not accept the uh, the hegemony of of, of Burmese rule, and, and they've been looking for a way to create a, a more democratic and federal constitution, but that hasn't happened yet. And um, so there are a lot, of, a lot of these things, but at, at the core, this is an issue around who are you? And yeah. the Rohingyas say, we're people who have lived here where we are in Rakhine State for a very long time, uh, and this is our home. Um, and when you meet them, they say, I wanna go home, but I don't wanna go home if I, if I can't be a citizen in my own country. And the, the Burmese are still not prepared to, to recognize the Rohingya as, as a member um, ethnic group of, of, the, of the country. And that's, mm. that's at the core of, of what this dispute is about. Mm. And are you hopeful about the recent developments in the ICJ? So with Canada and the Netherlands joining the Gambia, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? I, I mean, I, I guess, again, you talk about Burke. This, to me, is kind of yeah. like a, a, a moment about accountability. Do we think accountability is important? Or are we, are we going to just say, no, it doesn't matter, and there's nothing we can do? I mean, we have mm -hmm. created 
uh, over a couple of hundred years, actually, uh, a sort of a better understanding of what humanitarian law is all about. Mm. Uh, and it's it's not a, a, you know a construct that that sort of comes out of the blue. It, it it's 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 been it's been a steady build. Mm. And each stage of which you're building it is one where you're 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 pursuing the argument to to another level. And and I think it's 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 right that we're doing this, and it's it's right that we're trying to pursue it. I, I think we all have to understand that it's it's going to take a long, long time. These things take take a huge amount of time, and they're very complex, and 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 the result is uncertain. And and, and that's frankly a lot. Like, I mean, like the law itself. There's a lot of people who get charged with a crime, and then the the trial can take five years, and at the end they're they're acquitted. And they, mm. of course, there's a tremendous sense of of uh, mixed emotions when that when that all happens um i i do think that the 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 definitions of genocide that have have been accepted by the court uh apply to this situation that's my opinion but you know my opinion is my opinion we'll see whether it's the court's yeah. opinion but i think we were right to intervene mm. um and uh, i i think we're right to to be looking at it as a as a genocide. Sometimes people think genocide means you have to, your objective has to be to wipe out everyone, but that actually isn't the definition of genocide. Genocide has, has many different elements to it, uh, but, but it, it's not as if, you know, the, we, the Holocaust mm. is not the only example of a genocide. And we're, although it's, it's one of the most egregious and horrific, but we're certainly seeing signs of it, uh, I think, in in Myanmar. And it, I mean, it does remind me again of Burke in India, right? So like, you know, a sustained campaign against Warren Hastings, what is it, nine years, 80, 87 and 95, I think, um, eight years. So like um, that, that falls through, but it does make a psychological imprint on the people and does hold what's going on there accountable. So there does seem to, to be some richness or some value in holding people accountable, even when the intervention bit becomes tricky. Would you agree with that? I do. Yeah. I think yeah. you're absolutely right. I think the, the Jacobs theory. <laughs> maybe not a theory, maybe a, um, a, a practice. Surmise. The Jacobs surmise. <laughs> right. But, um, but Ambassador Bob Ray, we, we better, we better um, call it there because I think we've gone a lot longer than we were going to, but I'm really happy we did. Um, but th- thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's really such an honor for me to, to be able to speak with you like this. And I, I think that you have, uh, like Burke, carved out a noble career in the imperfect world of politics. And now in an imperfect institution like the United Nations, I'm sure you'll continue to do that. So thank you for what you're doing for the world. And thank you. Well, so thank much. you. Thank you, Jack. It's been great talking to you. And yeah. uh, it, it's, it shows you that, uh, you know, through the, the magic of the ether, <laughs> yeah. and soon, you know, you connected with me on, uh, on my Twitter account. Yeah. And uh, and here we are. It's been here a great conversation, and it's it's only uh, nine o'clock in New York, so I haven't even had <laughs> great. Thank you very much. Great Thank opportunity. Thank you, you Well, and um, come and see us in New York. It'd be great to see you here. Yes. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you very much.